0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. I told you last week, uh, we are in the middle of a multi-part sermon series. I'm not exactly sure how many parts. We'll see as the time uh, goes. This is uh, week number two of Undetermined Number, as we're trying to answer the question, what is the purpose of the law? So we're going to read Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, down to chapter 4, verse 7, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer, picking up where we left off pretty much last time. If you will, please look at verse 19. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God." let's pray father we thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather and study and we praise you jesus that you are our solid rock that all other ground on which we may stand in this life it can sink it can shift it, it it's it changes but you are constant you are steady you are our rock and our fortress And we want to understand all that we have in you and all that your coming did for us in this world and how it is you and you alone who empowers us not only to be righteous before the Father, but then to live righteously before the Father as well. So I pray, Lord, this morning as we study your word that your Spirit will make it clear to our hearts that you will speak through me and that you will use this to take another step in making us more like your Son. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've said to you before in the past, I believe, that I kind of feel like a person who was born maybe between uh, generations a little bit. I'm just old enough, just barely old enough to feel like I connect somewhat with people who are maybe from the baby boomer generation. My parents were a little older. That's probably part of the reason why. So I kind of know things from their generation and understand a little bit at least. At the same time, I'm young enough to know some things about the younger generation as well that sometimes I feel like some older folks perhaps don't know. And as I think Back through examples in my life that maybe I could use to illustrate this uh, idea, the the one that came to my mind, it's been on my mind actually for a couple weeks now, about three weeks uh, actually, is a weird little fact or detail from my high school years that I think will illustrate this point quite nicely. My class, the class of 1996, was the last class in our high school to learn to type on a manual typewriter and... We were the first class in our high school to learn how to use a modern computer, modern at least back in the day. It was 1994, uh, beginning of my junior year of high school, and like every junior class before us, we had to take typing in the typing room. There was an entire classroom set aside in our school that was filled with these big green, pretty sure they were made out of cast iron uh, uh, manual typewriters, right? And I guess I should probably stop here and recognize that for some of you, particularly for the youngest of you in the room, you may not have any idea what a manual typewriter looks like. So here you go. This is the closest picture that I could find to what we learned to type on in our high school. And if you want to know how this thing works, you can ask your parents or your spouse or grandparents or whoever you want to ask, I don't really care, I'm not going to explain it today, but for those of us who do know how it worked, it was great, right? I mean, it was a lot of fun to use, except, of course, when you made a mistake, because there was no easily fixing that, uh, you either had to completely start over, or you had to use those little whiteout sheets, you remember those things, where you had to like try to back up the typewriter to the exact spot, and then slip that in and hit it, and hope you, you nailed it just right, and covered up the, the mistake, That wasn't fun. But everything else about it I enjoyed. I missed the sound of the typewriter, like hearing them all clicking through the room. I missed the feel of the keys. I like that a lot better than I like a a computer keyboard. Well, after that year ended, uh, during the summer of that year, the school went out and bought a whole bunch of of up-to-date, state-of-the-art Dell computers. Remember these things? Yeah, they completely redid the lab, and, you know, these were awesome because they had the dual floppy drive, the five and a quarter and three and a half. That was cutting edge at the time, and uh, I had a whole stack of three and a half floppies well into our marriage, like all the way through seminary and beyond, I had a bunch of those going on. And uh, not only was it state-of-the-art, it was running the newest and latest operating system of its day, Windows 3.1. <laughs> Who remembers that screen right there? There's only a few of us probably. Uh it was a great class, we learned, uh, learned really important things like how to program in DOS, and how to play reversi when the teacher wasn't looking. Uh, so that was great. I've benefited much from those two skills over the years. Uh, you know, joking aside, as I've gotten older, I've actually come to appreciate that uh, situation more than I ever did, of course, when I was in high school. The class before us never got to learn computers, at least not in high school. They went on to learn them in college or home or wherever else they learned them, no doubt. And the class after us never got to learn on a manual typewriter. It was our class. I was just lucky enough to fall at the right spot to kind of bridge the gap between the two, and I'm thankful for that. And that's really what's been on my mind over the past few weeks as I've been studying and thinking through our text here in Galatians chapter 3. You know, last week we finally began answering a question that has been growing in our mind for a long time now, and it's the question you see very clearly stated here in verse 19, why then the law? And the context of Paul's question is this argument that he's been building along the way here that, that righteousness before God comes only through faith, not through the law. There's no way to get it through through that thing. And, and, and that is how God has always worked, and that is also how he has always planned to work for all people for all time and everything that went with that argument. And, of course, that's not how Israel understood things. They had come to believe that they could be righteous before God and live righteously before God through observing and obeying the Old Testament law, the Torah, and that God was somehow primarily focused on them and and, and who they were as a people above the rest of humanity. So, So if what Paul is arguing throughout this section is correct, then the question that we finally got to in verse 19 is, well, then why the law? Why did you give that God. And this is what we began to focus on last time here in these verses. Verses 19 to 20 are really just an initial answer. Remember this, to the purpose of the law. And I took the the content of verse 19 and I sort of paraphrased it into three E's. We're going to do a little test here to see who remembers what the purpose of the law is. I'll help you out a little bit. The purpose of the law was to expose and exacerbate sin until it expired. Okay, pretty good. Better than first service, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just took those ideas from the, the answer he gives here in verse 19. First, he says that the law was added because of transgressions. And remember, we asked that question well, then, which came first, sin or the law? Did, was there sin already in the world, and the law was given to expose that sin, to shine a light on it, so that you would understand just how sinful you are? Or was the law given so that the bad behaviors maybe that were out there before that you didn't know were wrong now are clearly, clearly become sin? They, it's kind of exacerbated, made worse into sin. And so which one was it? Sin first, law first? Well, the answer we saw biblically was both. Because biblically, what we see is that the law came and it did reveal that there was sin already in the world. Man was already sinful, and it's showing them just how sinful they are. And at the same time, it's taking... Uh, sin and it's increasing it. It's making it worse, uh, really. So, so that now because we have the law, we we. Our situation and our sinfulness before God is is, is even worse, so it's doubly condemning in this sense. In addition, we learn that the law had an expiration date. Paul says that it was here until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made. And the promises he's referring to now, you know well, is from Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, etc. And the offspring that he's referring to was named back in chapter 3, verse 16 here, that's Jesus. So, so what this means then is that the law had a time limit on it. It wasn't a forever arrangement intended to forever dictate the, the uh, relationship between the children of Abraham and God. It was a placeholder, and I'll give you a better word here by the end of the sermon, but it was a, it was a placeholder between God and Israel until the promised offspring of Abraham should come, and when he came, the law would come to an end. It would expire, right? So, so uh, this is what we learned last time. But as I said, this was only an initial answer. I was just getting us started. Because now that we've said all of that, new questions begin to come up in our mind, new issues and new topics. And, and as you can see here in the text, Paul isn't done. And so today we're going to pick up right where he and we left off last time in verse 21 to see where these questions and where the logic of his argument is going to take us. So notice that as we look now at verse 21, a new question has popped into Paul's mind. And the question is, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And before we can look at the answer to the question, we just need to make sure we understand why he is asking this. And so just think back really quickly through his argument up to this point. You know, he's made the the point that God's plan from his earliest days was to save mankind by grace through faith, that that was how he did it with Abraham. Abraham's the biggest and greatest example of that. And that's really what he's doing now for all humanity through faith in Christ. This has been his larger, overarching plan that covers everything that you see in Scripture. However, he gave Israel, and by extension we could say the world, the the law, a law to follow for a limited time that actually brought them condemnation instead of bringing them life. It brought them death instead of bringing them help. It, it actually hurt them. So then, if that is all, if all that's true, if that's the case, is is the law then somehow contrary to and working against the promises of God? In other words, was God being contradictory here, promising them one thing but then? offering them something else, saying that this would be true, but then giving them something that doesn't do what he says. So do you understand why he's asking this question at this point? Well, he answers the question with two very simple Greek words, me ganoito, me ganoito and just... There's no uh, exact way to translate these words into English, uh, so every time you see them in Scripture, they're almost different, almost every time, not exactly, but almost. But, but here our translators have, have translated them as certainly not. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases for, for trying to show just how wrong a particular question is when he's trying to, to get across a point that something just couldn't possibly be what it is he's suggesting. This is how he responds. And you see him use this different places in Scripture. For example, in Romans 6, he asks if we should continue in sin that grace may abound. Is that a good idea? Meganoito, in that place is translated as uh, by no means. In 1 Corinthians 6, he asks if, if believers should be joined together with prostitutes, if they should sleep with prostitutes. And again, the answer is Meganoito, like never is how it's translated in 1 Corinthians 6. So you, you get the idea that this is the answer he likes to use to his own rhetorical questions when the answer is so obviously No. No, never. What? Why would you ask such a thing? Why would you even consider there's a, another answer to this? May may it never, ever be. Well, that's the answer he gives here. Is the law contrary to, is it working against the promises of God? May <laughs> No, 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 certainly not. That can't possibly be the right answer. And how could you even think that. And so having, you know, gently begun to answer the question uh, for his readers here, he begins to expand on that answer just a bit. First, he addresses the fact that the law and promises had different purposes. The law and promises, they had just different purposes. He says, for if a law had been given that could give life, well, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Now, he's already made this point, right? Has he not in different ways earlier on in in the text? He's just kind of restating it now to show how the law and the promises of God were not contradictory because it all comes back to purpose. What was the purpose of the law? Well, the purpose of the law was not to give life. It just wasn't. The purpose of the law was to condemn. The Jews thought the purpose was to give life, and had that been true, Had there been a law given that if you could just follow it and you just obeyed it, then then, yeah, you've got life then, then yes, yes, these two things would be contradictory to one another. One or the other couldn't be true. However, that's not the case. Paul has made it clear over and over and over again now that the purpose of the law was never to give life, never to make one righteous before God. His purpose was to condemn. So since there's no law given that can give life, these two things aren't contradictory. They have completely different functions. Well, then what are their functions? That's a good question. Verse 22, the function of the law was to imprison everything under sin, and the function of the promise was to give life to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And again, he's already said all of this in different ways previously here in the text. He's just saying it again to make it clear there is no contradiction in the plan and workings of God. The purpose of the law was to imprison. It was to take everyone in this world and imprison them under sin. And so when he refers to the scriptures here, just generally, I think he's referring to the, the Torah, saying this is what I gave this thing for. The effect over all humanity was to condemn them. If you came to the law and you're hoping to find life, you know what you're going to find there? Imprisonment. You come to this thing thinking it's going to set you free. No, no, no. It's going to lock the jail doors down on you. You will be imprisoned. And this is a point that is obviously really pertinent for the Galatians because they're considering going back to the law. They think that if we go back to this thing, then we'll really know how to live in a way that that makes God happy. And and Paul's like, no, no, no. There's no freedom here. There's nothing here that's going to help you in any way. It's bondage. You're, You're going to jail if you go back to this thing. But notice that the imprisonment has a purpose or a goal in mind. It is so that the promise, the promise of life, the promise of righteousness before God by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Wait then. Is Paul saying there is a direct connection between the imprisoning work of the Spirit, or excuse me, of the law? Definitely not the Spirit. Imprisoning work of the law and Jesus? That, that there's something about what the law is doing that is like pushing us and pointing us to the cross? Yeah. Yes, something's going on here in, in, in the argument. I wonder if he's going to explain that anymore. Oh, look, he does. Verse 23, right? And here in verse 23, this begins a much longer section. It really goes all the way to the end of 4-7, but I, I don't have time to deal with it. I just want to kind of introduce it to us and then answer a couple of, get a couple of thoughts across, and then we'll have to come back to it next time because we need to explore this connection between the law and Christ. What exactly was the law doing in pushing us to Christ? Well, he begins answering that by giving us a time marker here when he says, now, before faith came. And I think what we need to do is stop and understand this phrase, not individually and not personally, but from the perspective of God looking at the entirety of his plan for salvation for, for all of the ages, for all of humanity. And this is really hard for us. This is really hard for us as American Christians because from our earliest days, we are trained to think of our salvation and of spirituality in such very personal and independent ways. You know, I think about God's grace to me. I think about how I was saved. I tend to think about salvation at only the individual level. And so it's sometimes hard to lift our view up above that to see what God is doing across the entirety of his story, but that is exactly what you have to do here in these next couple of verses. If you can't lift your eyes above your own situation, not think about faith coming to you and your own salvation, but but picture it from God's kind of macro perspective, if you can't do that, you're going to be a little bit lost. So try your best to, to have that view here. When he says, before faith came, I think he is referring to faith as an era, E-R-A, not error. Be your color on that. Sometimes my old southern accent comes out a little bit too much on a couple words. It's an era or an age, as in the age of faith. Uh, Just as a poor analogy, um, like when I was in high school, right? Before the the age of computers came, I was held captive by the typewriter, right? Well, it it makes sense. Again, that's not a perfect analogy, but I think you get the point, right? Until that age arrived, there was no other option. This is what I had. I had the typewriter. I had nothing else. But, but a new age came. These are different ages. One ended. The other began. And in a similar way, the age of faith and the age of law are, are two different ages. And before the age of faith came, we were held captive by the age of law. And he doubles up now on the analogy that he's been using, and he... Um, actually goes back to verse 22, and he pulls a word back in that he used there, and he says, we were imprisoned until that coming age of faith would be revealed. Until that age came, we were, we were stuck. <laughs> we were in jail in that age of law. Okay, so you know, what he's talking about here then is a change in ages, a movement from one era to a new era, from the lesser to the greater, from the inferior to the superior, from from law to faith. Can you see the switch that he's describing here at the macro level? All right, keep it there. If you see this then, he says, then you'll begin to understand that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, for those of you in here who like to uh, underline words in your Bible that are important, the word to underline in this verse is the word guardian. This is the key word here. It's, it's translating a Greek word uh, called pedagogue. Okay? Earlier, I said that the law was like a placeholder. If I said I'd give you a better word, this is your better word, pedagogue. And you said, well, I don't know what a pedagogue is, so that's not helping me at all. Okay, here you go. A pedagogue is a a term for a position in a house, okay? If you're a a landowner, you're a master, you've got slaves, you've got land, you've got fields, you've got all this, and now you have children, you are going to take one of your servants and you are going to make them the pedagogue of your children. And what that means then is, is that for a period of time, and I'll talk about that more in a second, they are responsible to basically guard and or babysit your children. They go with them everywhere, making sure they don't hurt themselves, making sure they don't do something they they shouldn't do, making sure nobody hurts them. They teach them, but they're not teachers. That's a little different. They're not teaching them to read and write. They're teaching them how their function is in the home and in society and just kind of how they should be in this world. This is sort of what the the pedagogue does. But listen to this because this is very, very important. This is only for a time. This is the key idea here. It's only for a time. So you would only have a pedagogue in your home when your kids are like, I don't know, between 2 and 13. Don't, don't, get, don't focus on the ages. I made those up. The point is, is when they're infants, they don't have a pedagogue. They have a mother, they have a mother, they have a nursemaid, they're not in need of a pedagogue yet, but a point finally comes where they need somebody to watch them 24-7 and go wherever they're going. You know how it is, parents, when your kids start crawling and your life ends for a little while. Uh, maybe that's the time. And then you don't need a pedagogue once the child has reached the age of maturity, whatever that age would be in your home or culture or society. You know, you didn't see, you would see this today because we need this, but you didn't see it then, 30-year-old men walking around with pedagogues uh, following them everywhere. Some of you could take that personally, and that's okay. Um, so, so a pedagogue is only for an in-between time. That's it. You get that? That's, that's the important point. It's for an in-between time, just a period of time. It's why I think the word guardian or babysitter is kind of a good way to translate it, but uh, it's maybe not the best, but it helps you understand a little bit about what's going on in that in-between time. And so out of this, people come to Galatians 3, and they start to debate, well, what? what was the law guarding us from? What was it babysitting us for? What was it protecting us from? And, you know, these aren't terrible questions. And I think, but I think, excuse me, that they somewhat miss the point of what Paul is doing at this particular moment in the text, because apart from his final comment in verse 24, which I'll address in a second, I don't think he's really wanting us to think too deeply about what the pedagogue does just yet. Rather, I think he's using this term simply to help us understand that the law was for an in-between time. That's it. From infancy, whatever that was, in God's macro plan, to the point of maturity that signaled the end of the pedagogue's role. And as you see here in the text, that point of maturity was the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ and the age of faith signals the maturing of God's larger plan of salvation that brings the age of the pedagogue to an end. And as far as what it's, you know, teaching us or pointing us towards, the only answer that Paul gives in verse 24, and he's going to build this a little bit more, so we're not done with this idea. If you have questions, you can hold them for another week. The only only answer he gives at this point is so that we might be justified by faith. That's it. That's a very general, high-level answer right at this moment. But the law, that entire age, is pushing us and guiding us to see that justification had to be by faith. It just had to be. There was nothing you or I or anyone else could do to earn it. You couldn't keep the law. Israel tried. But no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't do it. And so if if God is going to forgive anyone... If he's going to justify anyone, it would have to be by grace alone through faith alone because there is no one who could ever earn or deserve it. Now, this is where we'll pause for today, but I want to address something before we end because at this point I'm trying to think through like what questions are going through your minds and, and, and I'll try to hit some here and there along the way as we work. Uh, and if I miss one at the end of this all, you can come back and, and ask me about it. But, but here's a question I thought I would address today. If the function of the law was not to give life, if the function of the law is to condemn, right? Uh, If it's to imprison us and only to keep us uh, in check for a time, does that mean then that the law has no value, especially for us today? It's a fair question, isn't it? I mean, so far I've only said negative things about the law. That's because Paul has only said up to this point, some negative things about the law. So, so you know, if, if the law is all this best, should we be like Thomas Jefferson and go get some scissors and like cut out a big old chunk of our Bibles, right, and just go from Genesis 25 to Matthew 1? So is that how this should work? Because that seems to be what Paul's focused on. Um, can I give you a biblical answer? Meganoido? No, uh, no, 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 no. If that's where you're going in your thoughts, you are missing. You are missing some, some big pieces of information, and, and we need to kind of address that. Paul says in Romans 7, that the law was holy, and the commandments are holy and righteous and good. Which means then that if we could somehow, and I know this isn't possible, so just bear with me, if we could somehow like take the law and pull it out of the context of humanity and just put it in a bubble, like in a little vacuum all to itself, you know what we would see? The goodness of God. That's it. That's all you'd see. It's, it's not the law that's the problem, <laughs> If I can just get it away from us, we're, we're, we're good, because what we see in the law is at least a couple of things. One, we see the character and nature of God himself. You see what kind of God he is and how holy he is, and you can go to the law and learn tremendous things about the nature of the God we love and serve. But you also can see a little bit of at least how people should live in response to this God, and in a sense, that's good as well, because it's still good not to murder, and it's still good not to lie, and it's still good not to commit adultery. These things were good, right? They're good. The law was good. And so, in this sense, all of these commands are good. The law is good. It shows us about God, it tells us how we should live. But you want to know the problem? It, uh, it never gave us the power to do anything about it. That's the problem with the law. It never, it never gave us the power. The ability to be right before God and to live righteously before God, both of these things, folks, listen carefully, that comes by grace through faith in Christ and nothing else. You're neither saved on your own merit, nor can you live righteously before God on your own merit. It's either by faith alone or it doesn't happen at all. Not at all. And this is why we should never go back to the law. And I know for some of us, we're like, well, I would never go back to the Old Testament law and try to live by it. No, probably not. But you'll pull in aspects of it and then make your own law to go with it and think that somehow you can create a law to yourself that'll help you live righteously before God. And then you fail and fail and fail and you can't figure out why. I'm telling you, because the letter always brings death. Life comes by the Spirit and the Spirit alone. Why we should never go back to it because not only is that era over, but everything it demanded and so much more was made available to us by the age of faith. It'd be like going back to typewriters now, right? That make no sense. Why would I go back to a typewriter now? That age is over. Besides, everything that the typewriter was and ever wanted to be is fulfilled in the computer and so much more. That's not a great analogy again, but just take it for what I mean it, right? There's, there's nothing there. I can't go back and find anything there that I don't have times a million on the MacBook on my desk, you know? That thing's great. It's just so much better, so much more. And it makes me think of Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. It's like, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Jesus comes and he fulfills the law and he is so much better and so much more. And whereas the law gave no power to do or to cause people to be right before God and to live righteously before God, living in Christ by faith and by his Spirit empowers us to live lives that are finally and fully pleasing to God. That's it. And so we live by faith, we live by the Spirit. And you say, well, what does that mean exactly, especially in relation to the law? Well, those are some ideas we'll have to come back to later for now. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer? Jesus, we we come and we acknowledge that the law was powerless. It was an accurate reflection of you, and it's, it's an accurate reflection of how we should live, but it didn't come with power. You came and fulfilled the law, and now because you live in us and we live in you by faith, you, through your Spirit, can empower us to do all that the law demanded and so much more, so much better. Why would we ever go back? And yet there's so many of us who, us who daily struggle with this. We create our own laws and try to build our own righteousness and, and live in our own power, and it, we fail and we fail and we fail and we're frustrated and we don't know what to do. When you have made it clear, we have to live by faith We have to live by the Spirit. We have to live by faith. We have to live by the Spirit. And so, Lord, as we go out this week, as we go out today, help us to be committed to living by faith and living by the Spirit, knowing that this is the way we walk worthy of you in all things and walk worthy of the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.